Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and I, my co-host today is Marsha Brownlee. How are you, Marsha? Hey, Ashley. I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I am really good. excited to record this podcast. Our guest today is Mina Campbell. Hi, Mina. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Good. Okay, so I would like to start off by asking Mina if you can t- share with us what is in your freezer. What's in my freezer? Yeah, what's in your freezer right now? What's in my freezer? I have um, partridges, which is ptarmigan. I have so, and I have uh, we call them spruce partridges, which is uh, spruce grouse. I have moose meat. I have Atlantic salmon. I have brook trout. I have beaver. And I think that's about it for wild meat, but I also have lots of other store-bought food as well. well your freezer is much more interesting than mine or Marsha's. It's <laughs> 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 a true story. So all of those things beg the question, where are you located? Where do you live? I live in a small community. It's called Northwest River, which is in Labrador which is in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada. And we're on the mainland, the northern part of the province. And is, are all of the things that you mentioned animals that you've harvested close to where you live? Yes, it is, except for the moose. I, I don't harvest moose, but our family does. So we share, you know, this year out the food. So I got moose meat from a, from a family member. But wow. everything else, the fish and other wild meat, yes. And my friend also gave me the beaver meat. I didn't uh, get that myself. How do you prepare beaver? I um, Sometimes I fry it in little chunks. And sometimes I'll put it in a cast iron uh, pot and bake it in the oven. And my mm. grandmother, who who I was raised by, I was raised by my grandparents. So I've lived like the old-fashioned way. And she always kept the tails of the beaver and baked them as well. Now, I just can remember that, but I always remember seeing beaver tails in our deep freeze. So I asked, um, I asked my friend who gave me the beaver if, if I could have the tail, so I'm going to try it as well. Is the tail, is there meat in the tail or is it mostly fat? It's just like gristle. It's, I'm not sure what that is. It's not fat, but it's like gristle. I can't explain it very much like more than that. Cartilage, maybe? Yeah, something like cartilage, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to bake it, and then I'll peel the skin off, the top part, the skin, and just eat the gristle that's on the inside. Mm. It's, not, you, it's not very much to it. Like, I wouldn't eat that for a meal. I'll have the beaver meat, and I'll have the tail along uh, okay. with it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's cool. To, beaver is something that I would love to start eating i i would love to start trapping i don't think that i have the the time or the wherewithal to start doing that like today but um goals (laughs) maybe tomorrow yeah maybe tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Mina, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Um, maybe about how, how you grew up and what it's like in the place mm-hmm. where you live? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm an Inuk, which means I'm a coastal person. We live on the coastline. And so our main animals are, uh, well, main animal now is seal, which is a, a big uh, hunt for us in the spring, and fish. So that's like our main diet. And I mean, I'm saying this, we eat other foods besides that, but for our hunting and fishing, I just came back from our cabin and catch a whole bunch of brook trout and just gave a bunch of them away because that's what we do. We harvest, you know, especially at the beginning of the year when people don't have much of that species and then we give it away. That's what I did this afternoon. And um, yeah, so I was uh, raised by my grandparents. Um, All of my family pretty well, certainly all of my ancestors were hunters, trappers and gatherers. And so I grew up in it and I still live it uh, contemporarily. Like, you know, I don't go around on dog teams anymore. I don't use lots of the tools that they use, but I still hunt and fish. And um, and it's for food mainly. My community <laughs> is uh, 550 people. So it's very small and very close knit. And most of the people um, do similar to what we do. Is hunt and fish. Go to our cabins, and our cabin is about uh, 40 kilometers, about 30 miles from here, from Northwest River. We can only get there by snowmobile or or by speedboat, and uh, so we go in the water on ice, all ice, in the winter time now, and um, we don't have any electricity. Well, we have a generator, but we don't have running water, so it's real out in like the wilderness. Um, and so I went there all my life and lived this lifestyle pretty well all my life. So I grew up with hunting and fishing, and I still continue to do it. And so does the rest of my family, my brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and people. Um, the wild place that you were describing just sounds lovely and yeah. um, and amazing to have something that remote. Yeah, and I don't really know any much different. You know, I've traveled a little bit, but I'm here. Uh, like I said, my ancestors from time immemorial came from here. And I think now at my age, I will always be here. <laughs> I, <laughs> Mina, I love how you described um, hunting and fishing and then going and sharing it around to other people. I feel like that's really beautiful. And, you know, growing up, I feel like that happened more. Occasionally we'll get wild game from somebody or give some away, but I like the idea of spending a whole afternoon sharing your catch. Yep. Yep. That's, uh, that's our practice always have been. And like I said, especially, you know, at the beginning of the season when, and I'll give it to people that, and can't get it themselves, elders and elderly people and and people that I know that will appreciate it. And we've always done that, you know, when we get our first salmon in the summertime, you know, we cut it up and share it out. Same as seal meat, you know, cut it up and share it out. And we all do that, or as far as my family anyway, we do that. Can you tell us, uh, I'm assuming most of our listeners will not be very familiar with seal hunting. Um, can you tell us how that 
how do you do it? Yeah, well, that's our my family's main hunt. So in April month, um, so I live by a big lake, and so it's like a hundred miles long, literally a hundred mile long lake, and um, so it freezes over maybe four, five, five foot of thick ice in the winter time. So in the spring, around April, probably around the 20th of April and on, um, we start seal hunting. And so what we do is um, we look for the seals by either, so this is ring seals and it's young seals. No, it's not white coat seals, and we don't want white coats, and we don't want a seal that has any white coat on it. But they are young seals, just born this year. And um, so we want to see the seal because they come up on the ice and uh, sunbathe and play around and stuff like that. So we either see the seal to know if it's a good seal to harvest. And then if we don't see the seal, we come up on places is called rough, rough ice, which is like chunks of ice on top of the ice. Because in the fall, the seals, when the ice starts freezing up, the seals, the mother seals, make a place on top of the ice, but underneath the snow. So it's a gap there between the top of the snow and the bottom of the ice. And they keep the holes open all winter long, but we don't see them because they're underneath the snow. So that's where they have their baby seals is you know between the the ice and the snow so we don't we probably ride ride over them all winter long we don't know where they are but when spring comes the snow starts melting off the top of the ice and we start seeing the holes so one seal uh, could have six or eight holes where they come up on the ice or breathe through and there's also a big place called a house where they might have four or five breathing holes and little places like a tunnel, you know, where they lie around and do whatever. And so when the springtime comes, those houses and holes start thawing out. So we look for that. We look either for the seal itself or look for the houses and the rough ice. So when we find the seal, then by one hole, there's only one seal most always for one house or area and so we stand by a hole each and wait for that seal to come up to breathe and then when we do now we my family most of us we still use the harpoon but other people um, use guns as well so there could be you know eight or ten people or five or six people all waiting to the hole and only one seal is going to come up so then we dart it or or shoot it or if we see the seal on top of the ice, um, somebody might shoot it on the ice. How do you get it out of the hole? Okay, well, the harpoon that I have has a little, um, well, it's like a little dart. I'm not sure what, a harpoon, a little harpoon, which is attached to a line, which is attached to um, a handle. The handle is probably maybe six or seven foot long and so that's when you dart the seal the harpoon piece come up comes off 
and then you put the stick, the herb, the unak is called, this is what we call it, the unak. We put that aside, and then you got the seal on the line, and then you haul it up the hole. Whoa, that's okay, because the seal is like pretty heavy. So I'm trying to think of reeling yep. in a huge fish. That's <laughs> got to be water. hard work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And sometimes, sometimes because you don't know which seal is coming up because there's a mother and a baby there. We know there's a mother and a baby for sure. And when you're standing by the hole, the water starts to move in the hole, goes up and down in the hole because the ice is thick and the seal is pushing the water up. And so, but you don't know which seal it is. Might be a mother, but most, most always is not because the young seals, the ones we're harvesting can hold their breath for around 20 minutes, not longer than 20, but the mother seals can hold their breath for an hour-ish. Oh, so wow. most always the, the young seals will come up first, but not always. So if you dart an old seal, which is the mother seal, which is twice as big as the young seal, and I'm not sure of the weight of them, but uh, yeah, if you dart an old seal or a mother seal, yeah, that's, a struggle but a young seal is not too bad and they're very close to the top right they're not it's not like you're hauling mm. hauling hauling and line up sure. they're very close to the top but it's still yeah it's still a bit of work <laughs> wow but it's uh it's not only so and then we then we eat the seal meat and we share the seal meat we eat the seal meat and some of us <clears throat> i do i keep the skins the pelts because mm. my and i clean them and that's how I have my grandmother's ulu. My grandmother always cleaned seal skins in the spring when there was a commercial seal hunt in Labrador. And um, so she would clean the seal skins for the hunters. And I think, you know, maybe they paid her a dollar fifty or something like that. Not very much back then. And um, and so that's how I learned to clean seal skins. So I still continue to clean my own seal skins and make my own sealskin boots out of them from what she taught me. Mm. So, um, yeah, so we keep the meat and uh, and the pelt from the seal. And we want it to be a black seal, fully black, no white coat at all. Can you, I, I have so many things I want to ask you about because there's just like a lot of fascinating <laughs> things that you just talked about. Um, but can you talk about why, why you want a young seal? Does it have, is it related to the, flavor of the meat yes it is yes okay yeah it's the flavor of the meat and then what's the distinction between uh white coat and black are they born white and they become black they are yes that's right they they're they're born white and then as they get fatter and bigger and they get out up on the ice and start rolling around they um what do you call that the the white coat comes off mm. What do you call that when an animal loses hair? Um, like sheds it, sheds yeah. sheds the white coat. Yeah. And so when we find the house or an area, that's what we're looking for around that area, is because these big clumps of, of white coats because they sheds the whole the whole thing, and then they become black. And so sometimes you might get a, a seal that got a little bit of white coat down on its back or something like that, but not very much. I don't want any white coat. So usually we'll wait till, and we know, you know, around the 25th, 20th of April, they're getting big enough. They're getting big enough then to harvest. So if the ice conditions are not good enough, like last year, we didn't hunt. 
because the ice conditions got too bad before the seals were big enough to hunt. So we didn't go. Wow. Because we don't want to hunt the white coats or the small, you know, they're too small. And we know that because we know it. <laughs> wow. What do they, I guess it's interesting. I'm, so if the ice is too bad and then and then the, the young seals come out before they're big enough to hunt, do they just hang around? Is it at that point, I guess, warm enough that they're able to survive without that shelter? Oh, yes, they will. They'll be okay. The seal, the seals will be okay, but we won't be okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not yeah. if we try to hunt them on a bad ice. No. Wow. How is it this year? And so right now is good. So we start noticing in the fall, probably in November, start thinking about what's, what's the ice going to be like in April because it depends on how it freezes up in the fall. Um, if it freezes up without snow, like without a lot of snow, then it's going to freeze in the solid ice, which is going to be better for us in the spring. So last year it didn't. Last year we had a lot of snow and then it got cold. So there was a lot of snow in the ice. This year we have some snow, but we should be able to get for a seal hunt this spring because the ice should be good and solid. So that's really when we start thinking about seal hunting is in November. Uh, because we, you know, it depends on when the ice, you know, what the ice condition is going. We can not tell, but we'll have a good idea. And I mean, a lot of things happen between November and April. But you know, normally, if the ice freezes up good in November, with not much snow, so you can see that, right? If it's water freezing, it's going to be better, taking longer to thaw in spring. That's really interesting. Um, I had a I had a quick question about the hides. Do you mm-hmm. do you tan them in a way in a similar way that you tan like deer hides, or how how do you tan them? No, I don't do tan you... them. Okay. How do you process them. them? Okay. Well, yeah. first I'll take so the seals are really fat, probably two or three inches of fat up. Take that up just with a regular knife, like a pelton knife, which is a good sharp knife, and then there might be maybe a half inch of fat left on it. And then I put it on a board in a big container pan. And then I cut it off with an ulu, which is the semicircular knife. And it's actually an Inuit women's knife, you know, used by Inuit women in the past, mainly for cleaning seals, cutting meat and stuff. They're all over the place now. You must have seen them somewhere, even out there. Um, I, I know them through you. <laughs> yeah, I only know them through you. And I think, I, finish finish answering Marcia's question, but okay, I want to okay, talk about okay. how you make ulus too. Okay. So so then with the ulu, I take off the fat right to the skin. So there's no fat left on it. Once that's done, I wash it off, wash the fat and grease and that off the, off the hair, off the whole skin. And then I'll, um, I have a frame a big frame that I'll put it on and stretch it, stretch it with the frame, or you can nail it on the side of a building or something, but you stretch it so that it stretches out good. And then you let it dry and it's white when it's, when it's wet and it's black when it's dry. So I know when it's dry and then I take it off the frame 
And to make a pair of boots or to make anything out of that, then I have to scrape that last little bit of vellum or you know grease and that dust in it before I use it. So it's not set and it's not tanned. It's fairly soft, but I don't care about soft. I don't need soft for a pair of boots. Actually, the harder the better because it'll hold up better. And it has a little bit of a scent to it, but not bad. I mean, I grew up with it all my life. It doesn't bother me at all. I tell you, I cleaned the bearskin one time with a friend, a friend of mine, and I put a picture on Facebook, and somebody said, was it, was that stinking or was that smelly? I said, I'll tell you one thing. I smell many, many perfumes that people wear these days way worse than the smell <laughs> of that bearskin. Uh, yes. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so that's it. And that's it. That's the process. And it's a bit of work to it, and it takes a bit of time. But in the end, it's very good, very rewarding. Yeah, it sounds rewarding. How how are the boots waterproof if you don't tan it? Okay, so these boots are not waterproof. I don't know how to make the waterproof ones because there is a special technique to that that I don't know how. My grandmother did, but I never, ever learned that from her. There's a few people here in Labrador that can still do the, it's called a waterproof stitch. And also you take the hair also off the pelt not only the fat, but the hair. So what mm-hmm. I do, I use them. So my boots are just winter boots for cold weather. So th- they don't have to be waterproof because I'm not wearing them in the mild temperatures. And like, it's, uh, you know, 30 Celsius below here today. So I could easily wear my boots out. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but. Very cold. Yeah, so the, so, yeah. <laughs> it's very cold. <laughs> so it's not, so I don't need waterproof boots for, for winter, winter boots. Gotcha. Okay. We are going to take a quick break to hear from our partner podcast, NWF Outdoors. Another elk and deer test positive for CWD in Idaho. CWD detected for the first time in Alabama. The CWD Research and Management Act sails through passage in the House. There's no doubt CWD is in the news, and there's no doubt it's spreading across the country. There's also no doubt it's a complicated disease and a complicated issue. Artemis and NWF Outdoors are here to help. Check out the CWD Chronicles, where we talk to leading experts about the latest science, policy, and hopes for the future regarding chronic wasting disease. Find it on the NWF Outdoors channels or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. This is so interesting to me, Mina. Can you talk about, did, did you learn, okay, first of all, sorry, let me back up. How do you say ulu plural? Uh, uluik. Uluik? Yeah, U-L-U, uluik, U-I-T. Okay, uluik. Uluik, yeah. Gotcha. So did you learn to make Uluit from your grandmother directly? No, I didn't. No, I only just started making the Ulu about three since COVID came. <laughs> that was your. Everyone else was baking bread, and Mina was like, "I'm gonna start making Ulu." <laughs> well, see, I do a lot of crafts, 
I do a lot of crafts in the wintertime. I work seasonal and I work at a cultural center. It's a tourism center. So I, I, I get laid off from work in October and then I go back in April. So all winter long, I do crafts. I make sealskin boots and mitts and hats and just odds and ends. And so the first year of COVID, because my workplace was so slow, because we weren't getting any visitors because of COVID. And so we started bringing our crafts to work because we weren't doing anything else anyway. So anyway, so after that summer, I was tired of, I said, I need to find something else to do for the winter or for the fall anyway. And so then I don't know how come I thought of it, but anyway, I, I did make one ulu before, maybe about 20 years ago. I did a class and, um, and so I said, maybe I can remember how to do it. So I tried to remember and I did pretty good, but I did go to my friend, John Gowdy, who's a guy, like a really good crafts guy in town. And I knew, I knew he would know exactly what to do. So I went to him and I said, like, I need a little bit of help on this and that. And so then I, uh, so then I made one and then the next thing you know, I had like 19 made. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, and so it's a big setup. Like I need a bunch of tools, like not just hand tools. Like I need a sander and I need a Dremel tool and I need a drill press and a bunch of things. So I borrowed some and starting off. And then now this year I got all my own stuff and I don't know how many I made this fall. So because it is a big setup, I'll just do it for maybe, I don't know, maybe a month or six weeks or so until I get 20 or 25 made. And then I'll put it all away, and then I'll start sewing again. How long does it take you to make one? Sounds like you're you're pulling well, them out pretty I, quick. I I didn't. I don't think I've made one at a time. I've might have made two oh, okay. at a time. So I use a handsaw blade, a handsaw blade, and I cut it out with a Dremel tool, and then I have to. Um, Put the little piece between the the ulu part and the handle, which is a nail, um, a spike, it's like a five or six six inch spike, sawed off, and then I have to drill a hole in that spike, and I have to drill a hole in the ulu blade, and then I have to hold that together with a little tiny nail, and then I have to make a handle. And make a hole in the handle and put the other part of the spike, the yeah, that's what it is, a spike, like a six inch nail in the handle part. So you know, I could make I could probably make one or two, maybe one and a half in a day. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure how many I could make in a day. Not I mean, I'm not sure how long it takes me to make one because you know, I got a blade, a handsaw blade. I draw three on there. I cut them out, and then I do probably two or three at a time. Okay. But it takes a little bit of takes a little bit of time and it's a little bit of work. But it's very nice. It's very relaxing work. Very stressless. I love that about crafting. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. So especially once you get past that initial mm-hmm. stage of not knowing what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Once yeah, you once get you get past that, then you can. Settling. Yeah, well, that's what I said. I said, no, this year, that that first year, I said, I'm going to make 10 right away before I stop because I don't want to forget how to do it. 
So I made 10, just like that, before I stopped. Like every day. That's a great idea. Make them, make them, make them. And then then I took my time, you know, and said, okay, I'll make them now until it runs out of blades or until I get sick of it or whatever. So I'm not sure. I might have made 20-something. I'm not sure. That year. And I think I made 24 or something this year. And so Where do you get the blades? I just buy them from from Walmart or scrounge them up from... Because those hand saw blades, they're not, um, you can't sharpen them. So people just throw them out. They re- you replace them. So people just throw them out. And uh, so I just put on Facebook, anybody got any hand saw blades this they're not using? So I'm probably got, I don't know, maybe a dozen or something like that. And then I bought some from Walmart. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's an important tool to me because my grandmother used one. So I have two that I use. And these ones can be used too, but most people use them for ornaments these days, right? A nice little stand or shiny, right? Nice shiny in that. And nobody wants to put it on a sailskin. And so um, <laughs> the ones that I have, I have two that I use that were my grandmother's. And um, like it was. Uh, a special tool for her because it was important to her. And now it's become important to me. I love that. Do you use it for things other than cleaning seal skins? I don't, no. No, but people do use them. Women use them for cutting meat. But mine, I just have two, and that's all I use them for is seal skins. Mina, can you talk about if you if you know what the you mentioned early on that it was a woman's knife? So yep. could you paint the picture for us in you know years gone by what a seal hunt might have looked like if it's different than today? Um, what a seal hunt is like? Well, I just assumed since you said it was a woman's knife that maybe the women were in charge of cleaning all of the that's right. skins. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what it was. And the, um, a few men would clean skins and a few still do, but it was mainly, you know, the men were the hunters and the women cleaned the skins and, uh, and cooked the meals and things. They, yeah, the men were the hunters and the women cleaned the skins and cooked the meat. There's different things that, I can't think of anything to compare to to today that would be specific women's stuff. But there was like women's, Inuit women's knife, the Ulu, Inuit women's lamp, a lamp, a stone lamp, which was a hoodlick, because it was the women's job to cut up the meat, clean the skins, and use the lamp for cooking and sewing and stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's as close as I can get to answering that question. No, that's interesting. I, that was that was a good answer. Okay. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, the ice conditions really impacting your ability to seal hunt. Have you seen very many impacts of climate change where you live? We're not sure if it's climate change or not. Right now, it don't feel like it's climate change because it's very cold here. But the ice conditions last year were very bad. Like I said, you know, people, we had to give up before the, the middle of April because the ice conditions were so bad. But like I said, there's a lot 
that has to do with it because it depends on what happens in the fall, how it freezes up, if it freezes up cold without snow and stuff. So I'm I'm really not sure. And lots of people talk about that, but I'm not sure if if it is or not. But right now, where I live, there's a river, Northwest River, the river, which is, um, there's a bridge that crosses over to the next community, the inner community of Shehajit, which goes on to Happy Valley Goose Bay, which is the main hub community in this area. So Northwest River, I've been watching it now because I walk every day and I walk up to the bridge. And that river is still not frozen over fully yet. And it's been minus 30, you know, and that's the true temperature, not wind chill temperature. It's been minus, you know, 25, 30, 34 in the, for the past two weeks, except for one day we had rain. So I don't rain. know. I don't, I don't, wow. Yeah, we had rain, yeah, <laughs> and plus two to two Celsius or something. So I don't know, you know, I I don't know enough about climate change to really know. But there's there's other things that's happening here in Labrador too, like we have hydro development going on, you know, that could impact the ice conditions and things. So it's hard to sure. say. Sure. Gotcha. Marsha, is there? Do you have any burning questions? I have so many questions, Mina. I think I would enjoy just sitting and picking your brain and hearing your stories for a whole week. Um, but <laughs> since we can't do a podcast that long, um, yeah. I'm I'm curious. Could you sort of walk us through your harvest year? I'm curious what the yeah. what the year looks like for you aside from seal hunting in the spring. Okay, so right now it's um, trout. We're trouting and uh, white ptarmigan hunting and rabbit rabbit catching. That's the three things that's going on right now. And then we'll be, um, the spring we'll be seal hunting. And we, we trout all, all year long, ice fish in the winter and net, net fish in the summer with gillnets. So right now is uh yeah fishing uh, fishing trout, and partridge hunting and rabbit hunting, rabbit catching and snares. Then in the spring is the seal hunt, and then after the seal hunt, um, it's uh, gillnet. You know what you know what I'm talking about when I say gillnet. Yeah. A net that you put on the water. Yeah. So then you know we'll put them out probably in June or late June. And we'll catch a few trout then. Then July is a good month for Atlantic salmon. And like I live right close by the beach, by Lake Melville water. So I'll put my net just out. I can watch it. I can look at it, watch it with my spy glasses from my house, see if I got any salmon. And so salmon in July. And then in the fall, we um, spruce partridge, spruce grouse hunt. Uh, so that's about it for us. So I don't, we don't trap. There are trappers, but we don't. You know, my family, my uncles that were. So that would be a fall thing. But for us, yeah, is a uh, trouting and partridge hunting, rabbit catching now, seal hunting in the spring, or oh, duck hunting in the fall, duck and goose hunting in the fall, like September month, and then back to winter, which is now. Yeah. So I don't know, was that very chron- uh, chronological or not? <laughs> I, that was I got a good picture of it. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. It's so it's so cool to hear what your look what your harvest year looks like and compare it to ours because I would say ours is completely opposite. Like right now, it sounds like you have so many exciting things happening, and we're just waiting on turkey season. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I went turkey yep. hunting before. I went turkey hunting in Ontario. Mm. Wait. Did you get one? <laughs> yeah, my husband did. He got one. I never laughed so hard in my life. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we were just sitting up like we were going to war with all our camouflage clothes on, just the eyes out. <laughs> just sitting up waiting for a turkey to run by. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> that is a great way to describe turkey hunting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh yeah, we did caribou hunt a lot. But now there's um as a restriction because the herd has gone down so much. So that was like a main hunt here was caribou. But the herd the herd the numbers of the herd are gone down too low, so we're banned from hunting them, which is fine because we don't want to kill them off. Yeah. Do you know what caused the decline? They don't know. They say it's a bunch of different things between, uh, like, not finding the food to wolves and be- black bears and things like that. So I don't know. And it was, like, a big drastic decline, like 400,000 or something from, it was, like, 700,000 in the herd, George River Cable herd. And then it went down to 350,000, like in 10 years. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so it's really bad because that was our main food. Our main food was the caribou. Yeah. Wow. That's sad. Yeah. It's incredibly sad. Did you, did you used to prepare caribou hides? Yeah, I did, which is totally, completely different than seal skin. Okay, way I was wondering. Outfit. Yeah, way different. All different tools, a whole different process altogether. Huh, that's interesting. Well, it sounds like you've had a lot of experiences in the field and on the ice. <laughs> can yeah. you can, can you tell us about one of your favorite moments? Well, seal hunting is always my favorite hunt. And I guess... Um, And I should say a little bit more about seal hunting because it's not only about the hunt. It's about, it's a communal gathering of people out on this big lake that I'm telling you about, Lake Melville. And, you know, finding out from people if they got seals and, you know, we meet up with our family and friends out there. It's a big social event as well. Not a sport, but a social event. And, you know, we're happy to see each other and hope people got seals and things like that. And we teach the younger people also how to hunt. So in that uh, lesson of um, seal hunting, because remember I was telling you, you're waiting by the seal hole for, you know, one seal, seven or eight people, only one person is going to get the seal. You can't move your feet at all because the seal will hear your feet movement and it won't come up the hole that you're standing by. Mm-hmm. So it teaches people, not only young people, but mainly young people, patience, because they could have to stand like that for up to 20 minutes if they want to get a seal. If they don't want to get a seal, move all you want. But that's <laughs> why they're hunting. 
And no cell phones, right? You can't be playing on your phone. No, 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 no. You can't be on your phone. No, no. So, and then it's about, you know, if you don't kill the seal right away when you dart it or shoot it, then you kill it right away as soon as it's on the ice. So it's about respect, respecting the animal, about patience and about being happy if somebody else gets a seal. So it's not all about you getting a seal. I mean, it's good that you get a seal, but so there's a lot of different teaching teachings in seal hunting as well. And, and mainly because you have, it's, I, I wouldn't say luck, but there's skill involved and there's some luck involved, but you also, you know, like I said, you can't move your feet. You have to wait. So there's, a, you know, a bit of, um, I'm not sure what that's called, but, uh, and then you might be right by somebody um, that has a hole right next to you, maybe three or four feet. And I was telling you about the sign coming up and the water moving in the hole. Mm-hmm. And so one time my uncle and I were standing next to each other and we both had the same sign because the seal, we were very close together. So we were both holding up our darts, waiting for the seal to break water to dart it. And I got it and I was so proud. <laughs> Oh, it's probably my favorite hunt and my favorite time. And then we had a big laugh and a big story and all this. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's it's interesting hearing you talk about that because you're right. There's a part because it's there's with hunting and fishing. There's um there's skill and then there's luck and then there is that that. Uh, that third category that requires just like patience and awareness and quiet. That's mm-hmm. not quite skill. It's, it's just more of a way of being. Um, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but it, I like it and it makes sense because I know some really skillful hunters who are not very patient. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I like that too. I hadn't thought about I hadn't thought about the direct life lessons that can transfer from hunting. Is do most of the kids in your community get to participate in the seal hunt? They do. Yep. Like my two nieces both have you know, they started hunting I think when they were 11 and they both I don't know and they're 16, no, they're 17 now. And so they've been hunting already for six years. And I think maybe they got, you know, seven or eight seals already, you know, one, one or two a year, which is good. <laughs> if I get one That's a great. year, I'm happy. If I get one in a year, I'm happy. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, that sounds pretty special. I, um, I want to hear more about duck hunting because I love duck hunting, but I'm guessing it looks a little bit different where you live. Yeah, I don't do much duck hunting uh, because I I'm not that interested in it. But we hunt uh, black ducks. I'm not sure. I think they're mallards, and we hunt uh, Canada geese. That's our main ducks. So we go to the marshes and wait, or go to the shoreline and wait for them to come in a pitch, and swim in close enough to get a shot. It's not all that exciting. Oh, well, but that is very different. That's different from how we do it. I, okay, but I'm curious now. So do you set up decoys to get them to swim in? Or yeah, you... yeah, yeah. Sometimes we use decoys, yeah. Mainly for geese. Mainly for okay. geese, decoys. Yeah, but not on the land at all. It's all water. Right. 
Do you have a dog? Nope. I have a dog, but she's not a hunting dog. She's too no. fat to walk, leave alone hunt. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, all that. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't hunt with dogs. So who? I guess the water's pretty shallow. You just walk out and grab whatever you shoot. Yep. Yeah, you got to wait for them to get in close enough for a, a, a shot shot range, and then yeah, you can walk out and get them. Or if you're at your cabin or close by, and if you're there in boat, then you can go get them. But I mean, they're not going to be that far out because you're shooting with a shotgun, so it's not shooting that far. Sure. Well, Marsha, do you have any anything that you wanted to ask about? Um, not right now. This is amazing. Thank you so much. For this you're conversation. You're I've enjoyed it a lot. You're, okay, you're welcome. Yeah, I have too. And... <laughs> so uh okay. Mina, you have started to pass down the knowledge you have gathered around making Uit, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uit, sorry. So how can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, my niece's boyfriend was here, and he wanted to learn, and that was it. That's all you really got to do is want to learn, and if I know it, I'll teach you. So that's the, that's really what happened. Same as with cleaning sealskins. I've taught lots of young people to clean sealskins. They'll probably they'll never clean another one, but <laughs> they'll know how if they want to. Yeah. Well, and I think yeah. there's the very real possibility that later on in life, kind of like you, it might be something that they think back on and, you know, want to replicate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I didn't always want to do, you know, when I was 15 and 16, 17 years old, and in my grandmother's house, there was seal skins hanging on every door and seal feet on, seal fat on every doorknob. wasn't too exciting for me when I was all dolled up, ready to go out, <laughs> looking for, you know, who. <laughs> it's funny how that changes isn't it it is and it's only you know after you get a bit older and then you and you know now if I had my grandmother here now I'd have a million questions for her very cool well what we do every week is we go around the circle and ask about hits and misses so what you've been aiming for and how did it go and Marsha maybe you can lead us off yeah. So I, um, we're just getting off of a, a weekend and I aimed to do very little and it went really well. <laughs> <laughs> so it was nice. We had, um, it was Sunday morning and uh, I woke up and so I live in Montana in Missoula Valley. And a lot of times in the wintertime we'll get an inversion, which just means that the valley is locked in, um, in clouds. And so if you go outside of the valley, it's sunny, but in the valley, it's not. And so we woke up Sunday morning and it was just very clear that there was a heavy inversion and the whole town was in just covered in fog. Um, and it was cold, which was cool because if you've lived anywhere where there's fog and cold at the same time, you know that it means that every individual pine needle is frosted. Um, yeah. And so it's yeah. just like this beautiful winter wonderland. And so... Um, I got up early and drove through the valley and just kind of appreciated all of the um, the sparkling frost, uh, but then found a trail to hike outside of the valley. Um, and it, 
ended up being an eight mile walk, which is not what I intended it when we started, but <laughs> <laughs> one thing led to another. Um, and it was sunny, uh, out. So we ended up doing this big loop where we walked up the river, um, and then, and then up the mountains and across the ridge and then back down. And I got a little bit of a sunburn and it was amazing. Oh my. Yeah. And then I came back into the foggy valley and, you know, drank tea and read for the rest of the day. So it was a pretty perfect day. <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel so accomplished anytime I get a sunburn in the winter. So good job. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, I know. What have you been aiming for? Well, it sounds aiming like not, aiming, I'm aiming not to get COVID. That's my main aim. Hey, that's that, a good aim. That's a good aim. Yeah. Yeah. If you, no, I if don't you, know really. If you've made it this long, I would say that that's that's a hit. You're you're on track to. <laughs> yeah. Maybe make it all the way. Yeah. That's great. Well, well I'm going have... back down to my cabin tomorrow, so I'm happy about and is that. It... And it sounds like it's the ice is thick enough that you are able to snowmobile out there. Th- oh right yes, now? yes, yes. It's very thick. It's Good. probably about three, three and a half foot thick now. Maybe nice. more. Yeah, what are people, you, do when you know, there? I'm going to go ice fishing, and I'll probably do some sewing, and I'm not sure what else. Nice. Sounds like a good time. Um, yep. I have a major hit from this last week that I'm excited to share. I, uh, I really love horses. Um, I have since I was, I have a memory, I guess, <laughs> since I was <laughs> tiny. Um, and throughout my life because of work and other things, it's not always been possible for me to own a horse or to be involved with them. Um, and that's been the case for, I don't know, probably the last, I don't know when I sold my horse four months ago, probably. Um, but this week I found someone to start riding with and I went, she invited me over to her house. I actually called her. I just looked her up on the internet and called her to see if she knew of anybody in the area. And after I told her what I was looking for, she's like, why don't you come ride with me? (laughs) Yes. So hopefully on Sunday, I'm going to go do that for the first time. And, um, I'm excited about it. Is Charlie going to go with you? Nope. This is this is another exciting thing. This is the first independent activity I'm taking up since having a baby. So I'm excited about that too. Good for you. That sounds fun. Cool. Well, Mina, thank you so much for joining us. This was a very unique conversation for us and it was just wonderful to hear about your life and the stories that you have and we really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Thank you.